The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. looking at the book of James tonight. Uh, If you would turn to James chapter 3, we've come in our series through this book to the end of James chapter 3. Last week, uh, Pastor York talked about the importance of the tongue, that small fire that sets the forests ablaze, the thing that no human being can tame. And Pastor York uh, told us and and showed us that a, a new source is needed A new heart changed by Christ is needed for the tongue uh, to be be fed by Christ in order for for change to happen. But tonight we want to look at James chapter 3 verses 13 through 18 as we come to the end of this chapter. James is continuing to focus very practically on matters of our lives, our character, uh, and the behavior of those whom James calls those who hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and this time, James is commenting on the nature of wisdom. So if you would follow along with me in your Bibles, if you're using a pew Bible, you can look at page 1012. Let's read verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Would you pray with me? God, we're full to you for your word. We pray that we would come to it eager, knowing that you have promised to speak to us through your word, knowing that no one of your words falls to the ground without accomplishing what you will. And so I pray that you would be with us as we study, speak to us by your spirit tonight for the glory of your name. We pray this through Christ. Amen. James starts out with this question, who is wise in understanding among you? Now, two weeks ago, I had an opportunity to be the recreation director for Vacation Bible School. This is a highly entertaining role. And It was one day the five-year-olds were out for their 15-minute energy release, and our game for the day was relay races. Now, when it comes to five-year-olds, really my central goal at recreation is not just to, to play a game, but to get the kids screaming as loud as possible, running as fast as possible, to get as much energy out as possible so that something productive might happen in the remaining hour and a half of vacation Bible school. And so I started out by asking that question that always elicits a good scream. How many of you are fast runners? 
And, of course, every hand goes up, everyone's shouting, me, me, me. And then a follow-up question, how many of you think that you're going to win this race? And, you know, the whole teams are screaming. I'm hearing various comments about how I'm faster than a race car, you know, the things coming to my ears. It's one of those questions where you ask it and you know what pretty much everyone's going to say. There were a few realists, perhaps, in the mix of five-year-olds, but... Confident screams were the reply of pretty much everyone. But it was when we actually held the relay race that we found out which five-year-olds had good reason to be confident in their speed and their team success and which did not. And when I read this opening question of our passage tonight, as James asks, who is wise and understanding among you? I sort of imagine James asking a question like the question I asked to my five-year-old. See, it seems from James' epistle that he's addressing a group of believers for whom division, partiality, favoritism, perhaps selfish worldliness are all issues that are at play in the church. All of these are issues that are addressed in a short span in a couple of chapters here. And so you would expect this to be a group of people where many of them would say, yes, I have wisdom. It's their self-confident belief that they are wise that leads to division, impartiality, favoritism, selfish ambitions. But James, I think, asks this question for a reason. He asks who is wise and understanding among you, expecting that most of his listeners will say, well, yes, I have wisdom. I'm a wise person. But he then goes on to give a test, a test by which those he's writing to can see whether they really do have wisdom or whether they are out of touch with reality like some of the five-year-olds in my relay race. As we look at this passage, I think we'll see that James is carefully describing the source or the root of two kinds of wisdom, heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. Then he's, de- he's describing the, the trunk, if you will, the, the key attitude of heavenly and earthly wisdom. And then he describes the fruit of each type of wisdom. So he describes the source of the root, the trunk, and the fruit of each of these types of wisdom. So I want to look through uh, this passage and see uh, each of these, first for heavenly wisdom and then for earthly wisdom. James begins in verse 13 to describe heavenly wisdom, and then he completes his description down in verse 17. Who is wise and understanding among you, he asks, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In other words, James says, if you are wise, your conduct, your lives, your deeds will bear out your claim to have wisdom. Jesus said almost the exact same thing in Matthew 11. You may remember in Matthew 11:19, where Jesus says that wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is exactly what James is saying. If you claim to have true wisdom, it will be clear because it will be matched in your good conduct. I think this is such a helpful comment for us as we seek to understand godly wisdom. I'm not sure about you. When you hear the word wisdom, what some of the first things that come to mind are. You, you know the word association game. When I say this word, what comes into your mind? I think for most of us, when we hear the word wisdom, we start to think in terms of knowledge, uh, perhaps things that we know, 
Maybe we think in terms of our ability to make wise decisions. You know, should I go to this college? Should I take this job? Should I, which decision should I make? And someone with wisdom is well able to navigate decision making or, or, or they have good understanding. But James is talking about wisdom here in a matter that's not primarily about decision making or, or knowledge or understanding, although that certainly uh, will be implied. He's talking about wisdom as something that is primarily a matter of our character and our obedience. And I think James fits perfectly in with how all of Scripture talks about wisdom. That wisdom primarily is a matter of our character and our obedience to God, rooted in the fear of the Lord. And from that obedience and that character come proper knowledge and, and ability to make wise decisions. Well, James, James goes on to describe this good conduct of wisdom in verse 17 by giving us seven virtues, seven virtues, seven specific characteristics of the wise person. And this is the specific fruit that's on the tree of wisdom. Let's just briefly look at each of these uh, seven virtues, each of these seven fruits that grows on the tree of heavenly wisdom. First is pure or purity. In verse 17, James says, but the wisdom from above is first pure. Pure is a word that refers to innocence or moral blamelessness. If a person is pure, there is no unrepentant sin at work in our lives. There's no matter of reproach that's hanging over our heads. Purity is a word that describes our heart. It describes our motives. It describes our loves, our actions. All of these, if we are pure, are innocent before God and his word. Now, pure, I think it's important to note, does not indicate that we are perfect at every moment. Just as David could be called blameless or Abraham could be called blameless, they're not perfect at every moment. But as they stand before the Lord, there is nothing that stands against them. No unrepentant sin stains their character. They are pure before the Lord. Wisdom then is peaceable. Peaceable, the second fruit is peaceable, a word that can be translated as peace-loving. Wisdom is peace-loving. It indicates a person who desires peace, who does the hard work that's necessary for the sake of peace. And I think this is so important because a peaceable person is not a passive person. A peace-loving person is not someone who just gives in to anyone to avoid conflict. A peace-loving person is someone who certainly stands up for the truth. But a peace-loving person is one who takes seriously God's call. As far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. It is someone who guards the peace and unity of God's people, who seeks peace with anyone, who seeks to resolve conflict, who has a heart both of humility and desire to be at peace with everyone. Wisdom then is gentle. The third fruit is gentle. But the word here is not the same word that's used for gentleness that talks about a, a soft or caring hand towards others. This word here is a more specific word. This word for gentle is more specifically talking about the graciousness that treats others with care and thinks of them first, no matter what the scenario. Another word that's often used to translate this word is considerate. We consider one another better than ourselves. That's, that's the, the idea behind this word for gentle. Considerate, kind, honoring, looking out for the interests of others, whether we are wronged, whether we're in the right, 
no matter what the situation, the person who is gentle cares for the other person by considering them and their interests. That's the gentleness of wisdom. The fourth fruit is wisdom is open to reason. Now, this does not mean a person who will just bend to whatever opinion is expressed. Open to reason doesn't mean, oh, okay, you express your opinion. I'll, I'll give into that. Sure, I'm open to whatever argument you have. That's not being open to reason. Rather, it's the kind of person who isn't so stuck on his own opinion that he gets defensive as soon as someone else gives a counterposition. You know the type of person who you're hesitant to bring anything up with, no matter how benign it seems to be, because you know that if you say anything that's slightly different than what they believe, they're going to sort of see the hair raise up on their back and, and defensiveness sets in. That's the opposite of what we're talking about. The person open to reason is willing to listen and consider another person and their opinions. They don't let disagreement on secondary issues stand between the unity of brothers. It's a person who's willing to give in where that's appropriate and to do so for the sake of peace. As I thought about these virtues, just pause, these virtues of loving peace, gentle or considering others, being open to reason. I appreciated a, an example or an anecdote one of the commentators I was reading shared from the life of Abraham Lincoln. Apparently this is the Sunday of Abraham Lincoln, if you were here in the sermon this morning. The story goes that Abraham Lincoln ordered a uh, regiment of troops to be changed from one location to another. He hadn't consulted his Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, and when the Secretary of War heard the President's order, he flatly refused to carry it out and publicly declared that the President was a fool for ordering such a change in the troops. Well, here you have the President of the United States. Lincoln received this response from Edwin Stanton, and Lincoln said this. He paused, and he said, if Stanton says I am a fool, I am very likely a fool. I guess I'll go talk to him and find out for myself. He went and talked to uh, Edwin Stanton and was persuaded that his original request was indeed a foolish request. And so he withdrew his order. And the two men continued to have a very close working relationship. I think you see here both the openness to reason, but also the gentleness that considers the other person, where Lincoln, very publicly, when, when he's called a fool, defends the other person first, not himself, and then goes on to discover the truth. Here's an example of this peace-loving gentleness that's open to reason, the virtues of wisdom. Well, we go on then. Wisdom, peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Next, we have it's full of mercy and good fruits. If you've been tracking with us through the book of James, you know that mercy is a key virtue that James has come back to again and again. He's talked about caring for widows and orphans in their affliction. He's urged believers to show mercy in order to receive mercy. What is this mercy that James comes back to again and again? It's the, the active, practical care for those around us who are in need in some way. It's a daily, practical, active love for others that cares for them and their needs. And this is the fruit of wisdom that James is talking about. And finally, wisdom is impartial and sincere. However, I think it's important for us to note that the word impartial here, we've just come off James where he says, show no partiality. 
between ri- between someone, whether they're rich or poor. This word is, I think, slightly different. It's not so much talking about favoritism. The word here that's translated as impartial is talking more about someone who's consistent or steady. Someone who doesn't go back taking this side than that side, flopping back and forth. The word that's translated as impartial here most likely means something like undivided, unmixed, loyal, faithful. This is another, uh, this pairs very well with the word sincere that falls, follows it, impartial and sincere. Someone who says something and he does it, who when he says something, he means it. He is not a hypocrite, but he's true to the core. Faithful, honest, and true characterize the wise person. Now we've flown through these virtues. This is just a brief comment on each of these fruits. But these are the seven fruits that James identifies that adorn the tree of heavenly wisdom. It's the good conduct we should expect to see from the man who is wise. But James, I think, works backwards a bit. The good conduct, he starts off by saying good conduct should adorn the wise person and defines it with these seven virtues. Where does this good conduct come from? What's the stem, the trunk that these fruits are growing off of? Well, in verse 13, he says, By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. I think James here identifies this, this word meekness, this attribute of meekness as the, the sort of trunk that these, this good conduct is coming off of. Now, meekness isn't a word you hear every day while you're grocery shopping. It's not a word you use every day as you sit around the dinner table. So what exactly is this word meekness? Meekness is a word that Jesus both uses and demonstrates. It's a word that characterizes who Jesus is and is at the heart of what Jesus encourages in his disciples. Meekness is a humility of heart and a humility of manner. Meekness is a humility in what we think about ourselves, and it's a humility in how we bear ourselves. Meekness is a gentleness. It's an attitude that does not think too highly of ourselves, but it's also the manner that we bear out in interacting with others that demonstrates this humility. It's a way of treating one another, talking to one another, interacting one another that's characterized by humility, that's characterized by honoring them and considering them ahead of ourselves. This is the character of meekness. Now, if you know a little bit about the Greco-Roman world, you know that meekness was not considered a virtue by the Greeks and Romans. In fact, meekness and humility were words that described a weak person. A meek person was a weak person for a a Greek and a Roman. But Christ has turned this on its head. Christ has taken what the world considered weak and has made it strong. Christ has elevated meekness to a central attitude and manner that he himself bore out, that he himself demonstrated in his life. When we get down to its core, I think we can say this, meekness is the way we act and carry ourselves when we recognize who we are and who God is. If we recognize who we are as creatures and sinful creatures at that, and when we recognize who God is, the all-glorious, all-powerful creator, meekness is the attitude that results. And meekness is the trunk or the, the core of these attitudes. These, these virtues of wisdom flow from this heart and this attitude of meekness. Now, 
As just a quick side note here, it seems to me that James is using language that Jesus has used, language of meekness, to rephrase the classic Old Testament definition of wisdom. If you think back to the Old Testament, ask yourself, what is the root of wisdom? What is the beginning of wisdom according to the Old Testament? And I think you'll remember from Job, from Psalms, from Proverbs, from Ecclesiastes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is the attitude, the recognition of who God is and who we are. It recognizes who God is and all of his power and his authority and his just rule as king over all creatures. And it recognizes that we are weak creatures before such a great God, that we are subjects before such a great king. Meekness and fear of the Lord seem to me to be parallel ideas. They're both communicating a similar point. Perhaps one could say that maybe meekness still flows from the fear of the Lord, but I hear James and the Old Testament wisdom writers saying the same thing, that wisdom starts and ends, that wisdom is driven by a heart that recognizes who God is and who we are before him and then lives that out in the resulting obedience and humility and meekness that Jesus Christ demonstrated in his life. Well, if meekness is the trunk of the wise fruit, if wise fruit is growing off of this, this, this trunk of meekness, what's the root? What's the source? Where does all this wisdom come from? Well, James tells us, James tells us in verse 17 that, the wis- that this wisdom is from above. This wisdom is from above. Now, if If you have been tracking with us through James, you should have heard this phrase before. The wisdom that comes from above. This harkens back to James 1.17 where James says that every perfect gift comes from above from the Father of lights in whom there is no changing or shifting like shadows. True wisdom is not something we earn or achieve. You know, you hear things like, well, you'll, as you grow in experience, you'll grow in wisdom. Well, this sort of wisdom is not something that comes just from growing in experience. It's not something that happens just as you grow older and encounter more situations. This wisdom is a wisdom that comes down as a gift from above, as a gift from our Father. True wisdom comes from our Heavenly Father. He is the one who grants both the heart of meekness and the character and fruit, the conduct of wisdom that James described. And this is why our first response, if we desire wisdom, must be to ask God in faith. You remember how James said that back in chapter 1. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God and let him ask in faith. Here we have the reason. If we lack wisdom, let us ask God because it is a gift that he gives. The root and source of heavenly wisdom is God our Heavenly Father. The trunk of it is the attitude of meekness of heart. And the fruit is these seven virtues that James describes. But heavenly wisdom is not the only game in town. James uses verses 14 through 16 to talk about another type of wisdom. It's an, it's an apparent wisdom. It's an apparent wisdom that is actually no wisdom at all. And if true wisdom yielded peace and gentle consideration of each other, this apparent wisdom yields disorder and every evil practice. The fruit on the tree of this wisdom is disorder and every evil practice. You know, I thought as I read this, these verses, 
about a story I read four years ago of a pastor of a very large evangelical church here in America. He was a model of success. He was looked up to. He had a number of books on a bestseller list. He had a rapidly growing church that was quickly expanding throughout his city. And yet four years ago, this man stepped aside after an investigation into charges found that he had displayed arrogance, responded to conflict with anger and a quick temper, and had led his staff and elders in a domineering way. He was also subject to criticism levied against him for shady practices in his writings that he used to promote his books in order to get them on the bestseller list. Here we have someone, a church that had grown quickly, a pastor who had grown in popularity and notoriety. Certainly it appeared that there was a lot of wisdom here. Success appeared to be in play. And yet the fruit was conflict, disorder, broken relationships, suspect strategies. And James says, if this is the fruit that we see, this is not heavenly wisdom. It is a wisdom that smacks of this world and its ruler. Maybe I should be slow, though, to point to dramatic examples. Because how many of us can find in ourselves a heart that is quick to be critical of others, that makes comments that puts down other believers because they make decisions that we don't think are the right or the best ones, or that undermines others in a way that causes divisions in order to make ourselves look good? I think if I examine my own heart, if we examine our own lives, there are plenty of ways that we cause disorder that are not dramatic, won't make headlines, but we still want to see which tree are these fruits growing on. See, James pulls no punches. He says that disorder, conflict, vile practice are the fruits on this tree, and he immediately identifies the trunk of this tree. What's the key attitude behind this fruit? He says it's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Now, just so that we are clear, jealousy here is using this word in a negative way. Jealousy can be used positively or negatively, but here it's clearly used negatively. It implies an envy of others for the position or success that they have. While selfish ambition is an attitude that puts myself forward, it's promoting myself, it's seeking great things for myself. Again, sometimes this selfish ambition comes in a material way. Sometimes it's seeking material reward, financial success. But sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes selfish ambition is looking for a sense of superiority over someone else. Sometimes selfish ambition just wants to look good in a particular situation And that's the driving attitude of what we say or do. I think when I read jealousy and selfish ambition, I start to think about politicians who who are pushing laws through or, or maybe businessmen who are making decisions that lead to success by pushing others down. But I think it's important that we also think about our own hearts and the ways that we promote ourselves through what we say and what we do at others' expense. It's this attitude of selfish ambition that seeks to promote myself, that is the trunk of earthly wisdom. James concludes verse 15 with perhaps what seems like a dramatic statement. Maybe it's not something we expect. He says this wisdom is not from above. It is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. I think the word demonic sort of throws us off. Earthly we can buy. Unspiritual, okay, I can see that. Demonic, that seems a bit maybe harsh or surprising. But I think we hear James's point. James's point is that 
this apparent wisdom is driven by a heart of selfishness and sin. And Satan and his demons are behind that, just as they were behind the fall that sought selfish ambition. The wisdom that seeks success is only a parody of true wisdom. It appears to navigate life successfully because of what it accomplishes. But it's driven by this selfish ambition and envy that ultimately relies on the goals and standards of this earth rather than heaven. It is natural and of our flesh, not of the spirit. And it is given by Satan and his demons rather than as a gift from God. So who is wise and understanding among you, James asks. And his answer is detailed, specific, and clear. The wise person shows the fruit of good conduct, which flows from the trunk of meekness, the attitude of meekness, and is rooted in a gift given by our Heavenly Father, God himself. But the man who boasts success, knowledge, good speech, but is driven by envy and selfish ambition, who leaves a trail of disorder, conflict, and vile practices in his wake, should know that his apparent wisdom is earthly and demonic, not the true wisdom that comes from God. I think these are such practical verses that God's Spirit can use them just in reading them. Just in reading these virtues and these vices, God's Spirit begins to work in our hearts. But before we close, let me just draw our attention to two brief applications that struck me this week as I was looking at this passage. First, I was struck in a way that I had not seen before by how much James's description of wisdom has to do with how we treat one another. James's fruits of wisdom are so relational. They are so oriented on, on peace and how we interact with one another. Again, I tend to think of wisdom in categories of knowledge or ability to make wise choices, but even if I move beyond that, I tend to think of wisdom as primarily a matter of my own obedience to God's will. If I'm obeying God, if I'm reading his word and living it out, then I'm seeking wisdom. And without denying any of that, none of that is wrong, but I'm struck by how much James talks about wisdom in ways that talk about how we interact with each other. It is, it is a community virtue. It's a virtue that, that talks about how we relate to one another, how much we care about one another. It's rooted in our love for one another and played out in our, our desire for peace with one another. Practically every one of the virtues of wisdom that James mentions has to do with one another. It's gentleness and consideration of one another. It's patience and kindness in how we treat and respond to one another. We are to love peace, want peace, and work for peace, even at our own expense with those around us. We are to consider others and treat them gently, caring for them, even defending them, even perhaps when others are attacking us. We are to be open to reason, to show deference. We're to be persuaded for the sake of peace. We're to be full of mercy towards others in practical ways as we love them and help them. We're to be impartial in the sense of faithful, loyal, consistent, and true. I had not seen before I looked into this passage this week how much this passage defines wisdom by the humility of our manner as we live with one another, caring for one another, loving for one another, and seeking peace with one another. If we would be wise, James' test comes down to our love for each other, how we treat one another. And I want to meditate more on how my heart and life can embody this wisdom of caring for each other. As I thought about this, I thought how beautiful this wisdom is when it's lived out. 
Isn't this beautiful when we see a community that's driven by this wisdom? And I think this plays right into James's final comment. I haven't commented on it yet, but look at that last verse, verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We live in Lancaster County, so surely we have to be some of the best equipped Christians to have a picture of what a harvest looks like. And we drive by the fruit stands right now and see these piles of watermelon and piles of sweet corn piled up high. These harvests, abundant harvests of fruits. That's what, that's what James is talking about here. This abundant harvest of righteousness. And how is that abundant harvest of righteousness, this overflowing abundance of righteousness sown? It's sown by God's people who are characterized by heavenly wisdom, who seek peace and make peace and sow peace in their relationships. Can you picture the church, the community of God's people, all characterized by this humble care and mercy, this gentle consideration for one another? Don't miss the beauty of God's people living out this wisdom together. Well, finally and briefly, I don't want us to miss perhaps the most important key that's part of what James is saying, though it's not spoken explicitly. How do we get this wisdom? This wisdom is attractive. It's beautiful. How do we get it? We know, we know that it's given to us as a gift from God. We know that we get it by asking. But is there anything more specific we can say about how we get this wisdom? Maybe we're here for the first time wondering, yes, I would like to have heavenly wisdom but I've never thought about this before. I don't know how to get it. Maybe we've sat in church pews week after week and we're still saying, yes, I want to grow in this wisdom. Where do we get it? Well, the New Testament is quite clear. There's only one way to get wisdom. This life of obedience to God that sows a harvest of righteousness can only be gotten in one way. And that's through Jesus Christ who offers himself as our Savior. Think about other passages you might think of in the New Testament that talk about wisdom. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 3, Paul tells us that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30, Paul tells us that you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Wisdom that Paul then defines as righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Do we see wisdom in our lives, then it is the work of Christ who has saved us and worked righteousness in us. Do we see areas, do we see a life that lacks wisdom? Well, then there's one place to go, to Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has become to us everything that wisdom is, the one source, the one treasure chest, the one hope of wisdom. This is the beautiful picture of wisdom that Christ offers us. A changed life bearing these fruits that lead to a harvest of righteousness. It all comes through our Savior. And so if you've never heard that or never responded to that, come to Christ. And if you've delighted in this Christ for decade upon decade, return tonight and delight in him again because he is the one who is the root and the source of all wisdom in our lives. This is the true glory of James' comments. Who is wise and understanding among you? Only the one who has recognized his lack of wisdom and run to Christ and been united to Christ by faith 
and this glory of this harvest of righteousness. It is the work of Christ in us. And so, brothers and sisters, let us end by rejoicing in Christ and coming him together as the root and source of all wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you offer this gift of wisdom, a gift that is free, a gift that is available to all who will ask. It is available to us through the name of Jesus Christ. It is available to us through the one who lived the perfect life of righteousness, who died on the cross for us and rose again to give us your spirit to work these fruits, these fruits of the spirit, these fruits of wisdom in the lives of your people. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus, this source, this means of wisdom. And I pray that this church, that your church, would be characterized more and more by the harvest of righteousness as your people grow in wisdom, being rooted in their Savior and delighting in you together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.